I'm Samantha. And you're listening to Reaper Tales. And today we're going to bring you a bonus episode for Halloween. And it's being brought to you by a dog barking incessantly and kids playing on the trampoline right outside my window. Uh, it's great. This is great. Um, <laughs> today's bonus episode is going to be themed claustrophobia. We're reintroducing the topic again because. That was one of my favorite ones last year in our bonus episode lineup. Uh, mine this year is quite different than the one I did last year. I don't know if yours is. Yeah, I mean, it's different from the one I did last year, but it's appropriately themed, I think. Okay. Um, but before we get started, our drink was very hard to find. Um, but we did it. We did it for you guys. So what are we drinking? Me, we are drinking the tight spot. Um, they also, in like the video, they, it's a play on like jam. So like you find yourself in a jam. That's why there's jam in the recipe. Uh, yeah, I saw that and I, I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even put it together. I'm tired. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, so to make this drink, you are going to need bourbon, uh, fresh lime. You can optional, uh, lemon. I didn't do lemon because all of my lemons were moldy. And <laughs> blueberry jam, mint, and ginger beer. In the video, and I'll like link the video in the show notes for this episode. In the video, they like put the bourbon in and with no ice in your shaker. And then they put the mint and the jam in and they muddle it in there like that. Um, I'm going to suggest that you don't do it that way. You put the mint in, you muddle it, then put the jam in muddle it and then put your bourbon in and shake it with a little bit of ice which is what i did for the second one the first one didn't turn out exactly the same as the second one consistency wise is better with the second option so you're gonna put a sprig of mint in your shaker muddle it put uh, a teaspoon of blueberry jam i didn't measure it um i measured with my soul and my heart so you may do the same measure sometimes <laughs> <laughs> uh muddle those um and then put 1.5 ounces of bourbon in you can stir it that's what i did or you can shake it with the ice that's fine too strain it into a glass or um, add your lime an option like it's the liquid of half a lime again i did like a lime and a half because it was two drinks so whatever um because you know you have to you have to make two that's only yeah. fair well it was bourbon he was like you've got to make me this drink it's duh um yeah so you're gonna put the bourbon and the lemon in with it stir shake whatever your soul feels like strain it on top of ice and a glass and then you're going to top it with ginger beer optional you can put um a quarter of a lemon juice like squeeze lemon on it didn't do it um myself again and a sprig of mint for like garnish but i did it 
here here she is. She is pretty. It's pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't tried it yet. My husband said it was good though. So cheers. Cheers to a tight spot or being in a jam. Huh. Huh. That's pretty good. Huh. I like that. Save it for the next time I come see you. Okay. Um, so yeah. Uh enjoy your tight spot or being in a jam or your jammy bourbon drink. I will. Hope you do. But I'm up first, and I'm up first because mine's sad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you could put it that way, or you could say we wanted to leave uh, on a slightly, um, not happier, but... uh, Lighter note? Hearted note, I guess. Yeah, lighter note. Um, So mine will go second, but okay, sure. Yeah, yours is sad, so let's go first. (laughs) Okay, well... Today, I am going to tell you about the Sago mine disaster. And I've lost you. Where did you go? You're not on my screen anymore. There we go. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I didn't go anywhere, I promise. I know. So, in Sago, West Virginia, the Sago mine is the site of one of the most devastating disasters to occur in West Virginia. In the early morning hours of January 2nd, 2006, two groups of miners were entering the mines when an explosion occurred. The subsequent cave-in trapped the first group of 13 inside the mine, and the group behind them soon found the air too contaminated with carbon monoxide, CO, for them to attempt a rescue on their own. It was reported that the early that the early hours after the blast were chaotic and the mining company did not call a specialized mine rescue crew until 8.04, more than 90 minutes after the blast. The company notified IMSHA, which is the mining equivalent of OSHA, um, at 8.30. The company said it started its calls at 7.40. IMSHA records two calls at 8.10, to personnel who were out of town due to holiday due to the holidays. So pretty much um Sago Mining is saying that they began calling at 7:40 MSHA saying we didn't start receiving calls until 8:10. And, nah dude, you waited. Yeah. And at 8:10 the the Sago Mining company was calling people who weren't even in town or answering their phone. So it wasn't just talk calling the organization. They were calling specific people. Yeah. IMSHA personnel arrived on site at approximately 10.30 a.m. The first rescue crew arrived 10 minutes later. High levels of carbon monoxide, CO, and methane gas in the mine atmosphere made it necessary for rec- rescuers to wait 12 hours after the explosion to begin to reach the miners. Like to try so just to clarify, to. they can't get in there. And I get I get that. That's it's hazardous. There is dangerous. Um, and, and, you know, it's probably a dangerous not just for them, but for the people inside. But are they breathing all of this in the whole time as well? The people inside the mine? Right. You bet your sweet ass they are. So, I mean, there's that, that many hours like there's a bit of a caveat and I talk about it later on, but pretty 
all miners are equipped with these SRS whatever S here SCSR self-contained self-rescuer devices that provide oxygen to them. But how There's long are they supposed to last? An hour. Oh yeah, see, that's not. I mean, that's it's good for like a quick issue where something's going on to get you out. Like if you have an immediate exit, yeah. essentially. So this isn't for a case of a cave in when you're stuck. Correct. Okay. And there's, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of issues surrounding like, first off, coal mining, super dangerous, super bad for the environment. Um, you know, uh, super corrupt in and of itself. Um, yeah. So just not a big fan of it. <laughs> myself. what you really think, Montana? Uh-uh. Well, there's so many, there's so many cases of things like this happening and it just, it just continuously happens. So it's just, it's not, it's not ideal. Um, tests taken through holes drilled from the surface showed that the air near where the miners were last known to be stationed contained 1300 parts per million of CO. More than 200 parts per million is considered unsafe. And I actually map it out later on, like the different levels um as per osha what we can sustain as humans i'm gonna take a wild guess and say that ain't it that ain't it yeah that ain't it. however each miner had a self-contained self-rescuer a cs a scsr device that provided one hour of breathable air emergency supplies were stored in 55 gallon drums within the mine so they would have, potentially they would have other resources within the mine to help them sustain life if they were there for longer. Okay. Even after the gases abated, rescue teams had to proceed with caution, continually, continually testing for hazards such as water seeps, explosive gas concentrations, and unsafe roof conditions. This limited their rate of progress to 1,000 feet per hour. They checked in every 500 feet and then disconnected their telephones un until the next checkpoint. In order to avoid the possibility of a spark creating another explosion, IMSHA had deployed a 1,300-pound robot into the mine as well, but pulled it out after it became mired 2,600 feet from the mine entrance. After more than nine hours, the rescue teams pulled out of the mines around 3.40 a.m. on Tuesday, January 3rd. There was concern that the gases from the mines would be ignited by the equipment being used for the rescue. Because it heats up, you know, whatever. In order to attempt to locate the 13 trapped miners who were approximately two miles inside the mine and 280 feet below ground, five four-man teams tried to make their way through the entries. By 12.40 p.m. on January 3rd, they had reached 10,200 feet into the mine. It was believed that the trapped miners were somewhere between 11,000 to 13,000 feet from the entrance. They drilled two holes from the surface into the areas where they believed the miners would be and lowered in microphones and video cameras. 
leaving them there for 10 minutes, but didn't find any signs of life. Not only that, but air quality tests performed that morning, this the day after January 3rd, indicated that the CO levels in those areas were still 1,300 parts per million. Just to give you a bit of an understanding for the scale of carbon monoxide levels, I looked it up online so you didn't have to. And I'm putting this on record in case any, anything happens to anybody in my life. FBI, I looked it up for a podcast, not for my own use. So nine parts per million is the maximum indoor safe carbon monoxide level for over eight hours. So that would be like in your own house. Okay. You know, you have like an oven seep or like you left your car running in the garage. Like that's a lot of whatever. Um, 200 parts per million or greater will cause physical symptoms and is fatal in hours. 800 parts per million of CO or greater in the air is fatal within minutes. And theirs was over a thousand. 1300. Yes. With this knowledge, rescuers were a bit discouraged about the ability to rescue anyone alive, but knowing that the miners were equipped with oxygen in case of this type of situation and their training on how to keep safe left some feeling like there might be hope. The first hint of the miners' status came around 5 p.m. on January 3rd, when it was reported that a body had been found. Because of the location of the body, those familiar with the miners and their jobs believed it was the fire boss, Terry Helms. Hours later, just before midnight, rumors spread quickly that 12 of the 13 miners had been found alive. 30 minutes later, the rescue team told company officials that the original report was incorrect. And this actually ends up sparking like a lot of debate later on. Um, a bunch of like finger pointing people saying like, you gave a bunch of people hope. Because the media just ran with this knowledge. It's a miracle. 12 of the 13 miners were found alive. Blah, 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 blah. And all it took was that 30 minutes. There were people who were like praying in church, who were like families of the miners. And they were hearing this information. And, you know, an hour later or so, they're told that that's not true. We still don't have this information, which is devastating. And yeah, that's why it's important to, you know, vet the information before you release it to the public. Yes. But during all this rescue uh, attempts, what was happening below ground? Before we get into that, we need to talk a little bit about what occurred leading up to the explosion. Three weeks prior to the explosion, Randall McCloy Jr., 26, and Junior Toller found, while drilling a bolt hole, a gas pocket, which detectors concern con- <clears throat> confirmed, I haven't done that in a while, the presence of methane. Quote from Randall, We immediately shut down the roof bulger, and the incident was reported up the line to our superiors. I noticed the following day that the gas leak had been plugged with glue normally used to secure the bolts. This will come up later. 
He remembered that on January 2nd, 2006, just after, and I'm going to go ahead and say Randall survives. Yay. Okay. He remembered that on January 2nd, 2006, just after exiting the man trap trip, quote, the mine filled quickly with fumes and thick smoke and that breathing conditions were nearly unbearable. At least four of the emergency ox... This is going to piss you off. At least four of the emergency oxygen packs were not functioning. Of course. Of course. Quote, I shared... I'm going to take a while, I guess, and say they're supposed to be tested periodically, and somebody forgot to do that. Mm -hmm. Quote, I shared my rescuer with Jerry Groves. While Toller, Jesse Jones, and Tom Anderson sought help from others, there were not enough rescuers to go around. Because of the bad air, they, quote, had to abandon our escape attempts and return to the coal rib, where we hung a curtain to try to protect ourselves. The curtain created an enclosed area of about 35 feet. 12 people in 35 feet. Jesus. (laughs) Speaking of claustrophobia. The thought of being underground like freaks me out so much. Like I'm sweating. Uh, (laughs) uh, uh, That's why when um, What's-His-Face does those like uh, dive things. Uh, Mr. Ballin. When he does the like people who get trapped in like the dive caves and Mm -hmm. all of that stuff. It gives me so much anxiety. I cannot, I can't imagine because your air is limited and you can't just like, you can't just like, boop, like right up to the, nope. If you make too much noise, it could cave in on you. Mm -hmm. (sighs) We just, just like going to the bottom of the ocean and going to space. Well, you know what? I'm never going to space. You guys are welcome to continue, but going to the bottom of the ocean, we should not be going to the bottom of the earth. Like, just stop doing it. That's all I'm saying. There's nothing good to be found. No. They attempted to signal our location to the surface by beating on the mine bolts and plates. We found a sledgehammer, and for a long time we took turns pounding away. We had to take off the rescuers in order to hammer as hard as we could. This effort caused us to breathe much harder. We never heard a responsive blast or shot from the surface. After becoming exhausted, they stopped trying to signal. The air behind the curtain grew worse, so I tried to lay down as low as possible and take shallow breaths. I could tell that it was gassy. Toller and Anderson tried to find a way out. The heavy smoke and fumes caused them to quickly return. There was just so much gas. At that point, the miners, despite their fears, began to accept their fate. Toller led them all in the sinner's prayer we quote we prayed a little longer than someone suggested that we each write letters to our loved ones mccloy quote became very dizzy and lightheaded some drifted some drifted off into what appeared to be a deep sleep and one person sitting near me collapsed and fell off his bucket not moving it was clear that there was nothing i could do to help him the last person I remember speaking to was Jackie Weaver, who reassured me that if if it were our time to go, that God's will would be fulfilled. 
As my trapped co-workers lost consciousness one by one, the room grew still, and I continued to sit and wait. Unable to do much, I have no idea how much time went by before I also passed out from gas and smoke, awaiting rescue. Randall was the only survivor of the Sago uh, mine explosion. His recovery took months, and a good portion of which he was in a coma and uh, or and uh, or unable to speak. Wow, he still struggles to this day. He still struggles with like, you know, uh, issues with like vision and his nervous system and things like that. And at that time, he was twenty six. He's he's like our age now. No, no, he's at that time he was ten years younger than me. Well, whatever. Right around. I mean, that's young. Dang, 2006. I was 16. That's right. Am I, am I thinking I'm older than I am? I, I think so. <laughs> uh, there was, of course, several investigations by the West Virginia government, the U.S. Department of Labor, and the UMWA, which is the United Mine, United Mine Workers of America. There was a lot of drama behind that last one. The ICG, International Coal Group, accused the UMW of trying to manipulate the tragedy for its own agenda. And I'm like, I'm not going to get into the details of this. It, and I can't say who's right or who's wrong in this situation. But what I can tell you is that any governing group has historically demonize unionization and has found ways to make people believe that they have their own agenda and they do but the agenda is to protect workers so that's all i'm going to say there there was also a huge issue surrounding the freedom of information act um from imsha when talking about the disaster i don't have enough time to get into it but basically MSHA wasn't releasing all of the information around the tragedy, the explosion, and their interviews with it, but it was kind of like a gray area. Like, they were doing an investigation, and a lot of this stuff needs to be public knowledge, open to the public, and they just weren't releasing the information, <laughs> which, I mean... <laughs> it probably didn't make anything look real good on them. no. Not on Sago and honestly not on MSHA and not on the government. Um, there are, you know, there are a lot of co-lobbyists mm-hmm. and there's a reason why they'd want to keep quiet on some stuff. Now that's me making it political. <laughs> Over the years, several different political heads pushed for closure and ran on campaigns based on like closing the investigation and figuring out what happened to get answers for the disaster. But pretty much what we're left with right now is a maybe answer. Okay. As to what happened? Weatherbug, a Germantown, Maryland headquartered website tracking system reported on January 6, 2006 that Quote, the evidence suggests that the lightning strike could have caused the explosion due to the correlation between the timing and location of lightning strike and seismic activity. The company equipped detected 100 lightning strikes in the region within 40 minutes of the explosion. 
A single powerful lightning strike registered at or near the mouth of Sago Mine at 2.26 and 36 seconds a.m. This strike carried a particularly high uh, positive current of 35 kA. A typical strike is 22 to 25. 35 is rare. Okay. Dr. Martin Chapman, Ph.D., a Virginia Tech research assistant professor, found that two independent sensors recorded a minor seismic event, possibly from the explosion, two seconds later at 626 and 38 seconds. So they're basically saying we recorded this lightning strike, and within seconds we had that seismic event that was recorded that we believe was the explosion of the vine, Mm -hmm. which makes sense. In his January 13, 2006 story in Charleston Gazette, um, Ken Ward Jr. reported, quote, Sago Blast Area was recently sealed. And that the state officials approved the use of Omega Blocks, a dense foam product, product to seal the mine, rather than the required concrete blocks. Deputy Director of the West Virginia Office of Miners Health, Safety, and Training told the state board of that group that, quote, the seals made with foam could withhold pressure of five pounds per square inch. U.S. Mine and Safety, U.S. Mine Safety and Health Administration rules seals to be built using solid concrete block or alternate materials that will withstand 20 pounds per square inch of pressure. The National Institute for Occupational Health, freaking OSHA, (laughs) in its report, quote, protecting coal miners from gob exposure explosions through explosion-resistant mine ventilation seals, this report was from 1993 to 2005, reported that, quote, without reliable seal designs, Miners' lives could be in jeopardy from the consequences of an underground explosion. Which kind of seems like duh. Uh, duh. NIOSH also noted that in an explosion caused by lightning in a sealed area of the Gary 50 mine, four feet thick pump cement seals tested by NIOSH and approved by MSHA, quote, effectively contain the explosion, thereby sparing the miners working nearby. So pretty much what they're saying in a roundabout way is that the seal that they put on that hole that was approved from supervision up the stream was not in line with NIOSH. Okay. But they're they're trying to blame a lot. And like, don't get me wrong. Yeah. Lightning strike was what caused the explosion. But what effectively caused the explosion was the lack of oversight and handling a gas leak. And I also just want to point out that the Sago Mines had cited by MSHA 208 times. They had citations 208 times for violating regulations in 2005 alone. And nothing else other than these citations could be done. Like, that seems a little excessive. This was, 2005 was days before this explosion happened. 
This was up from 68 in 2004. 96 of the 2008 citations were considered significant, serious, and substantial. SNS. They had warning. They had warning. They kind of go into like the breakdown of this and that the uh, Sago coal mine like um, picked up production, like doubled its production from 2004 to 2005. But my friend, my friend, the math is not mathing. No. You're over a hundred, you're like at 200% up on violence. <laughs> what are you talking about? The Charleston Gazette said, quote, Sago Mine has a history of roof falls. So they have a history of collapses. MSHA found 52 violations from April to June, of which 31 were serious and substantial, S&S. From early July to late September, MSHA found 70 violations, 42 of which were S&S. MSHA inspections from early October to late December, resulted in 46 citations and three orders, 18 of which were SNS. Violations included failure to follow the approved roof control and mine ventilation plans and problems concerning emergency escapeways and required pre-shift safety examinations, such as examining the oxygen, such as shoring up your roof to ensure a collapse doesn't happen. These are mm-hmm. all blatant. Yeah. The, the Gazette article explained that SNS violations are those that MSHA believes are likely to cause an accident that would seriously injure a minor. Duh. On March 11, 2006, the Associated Press reported that federal inspectors had approved the Seiko mine for reopening the previous day. This just sounds like Deepwater Horizon, the whole, like, it's the same sort of thing. Just, yeah, there's, there's protections and regulations that are in place for a reason. When you know something's wrong and you need to fix it, how about we fix it? I know production's important, but maybe let's not kill a bunch of people in the process. You know, um, the uh, 1% still need their money, Samantha. Still got to make that cash for them. Mm-hmm. On March 16th, the Village Voice reported that the mine that the mine reopened. The paper criticized, quote, so not knowing what caused the explosion, because to this day they still don't fully have concrete evidence of what started the explosion, like caused it. So not knowing what caused the explosion or whether the mine remains vulnerable to that kind of accident, the mine owners started operations again as the federal and state safety officials stood by and watched. Wow. ICG closed the mine on March 19th, 2007. On December 12th, 2008, they announced on their website they would be closing it permanently. Which, duh! Yeah, sounds like a good good idea. If you don't, if you don't know what caused an explosion... You have no way of knowing if it's going to happen again. Exactly. So that's my claustrophobia one. And I know I went into like a whole bunch of like political stuff, but it like it could have been avoided. Yeah. Randall didn't have to spend almost two days in a mine surrounded by his dead co workers 
and 35 feet suffocating if proper measures have been taken. Cool. Uh, um, uh, apparently. Apparently. Yeah. Don't sue us. Um, okay. Um, good job, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, anything. I, I, I'm not a super big fan of going underground. I've been to several different caves um, on tourists type trips, but Every time I go to Ruby Falls, because I've gone three times, two or three times now, um, I when that elevator goes down so far down into the the caves, I'm like, oh uh, no! And then some of the the roof lines are so low, like no thanks. Every time I do it, I'm like, why am I doing this to myself again? I really shouldn't. It reminds me of uh, Desoto Caverns, which I don't yeah. mind Desoto Caverns. They had the that one wasn't huge, so bad, like amphitheater. That was area. a lot bigger. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, are you ready to hear about my story? Yeah. Thoughts and prayers on this one? Uh, do I? Thoughts and prayers on this one. I'm going to talk about the, the whole sub situation, uh, at the Titanic. Just kidding. I'm not going to cover that. No, what I have is, is much, much, uh, more interesting. So for my story, we're going to talk about a robbery gone wrong and why attempting to enter a business via the ventilation system doesn't quite work like it does in the movies. Those ventilation systems are like tiny and they, (laughs) they get smaller. I know. Uh, okay. So this story occurred in March of 2019 when Sean, Maranzino, I guess, Maranzino, who was 32 at the time and described as an unemployed HVAC repairman, was found stuck inside the air conditioning vent of a dentist office. I say alleged burglar because he didn't actually confess. He claimed he was looking for sparkles. His cat. Oh, I was like, um, was this man on drugs? Possibly. (laughs) Also still, but... For reference, just in case those of you may have questions about how this actually works, for reference, most, most HVAC ventilation is between 2 and one fourth inch by 10 inches to up to 8 inches by 14 inches. So that's, that's the biggest size is 8 by 14. Most of us are not going to fit in such a small space, needless to say. I feel like the top part of my body would, but it'd get right to my... my- <laughs> Um, much larger bottom. We ain't gonna do like, ah, girl, stop. (laughs) Just just don't. Um, So that's at least one reason why this is a bad idea. Ventilation is also not meant to hold very much weight for obvious reasons. It's literally just supposed to be there and air goes through it. So it goes to reason that it's not going to hold up a person. The ventilation for the dentist office that we're referring to was only 14 inches wide. Sean was found after being trapped for three hours, some said three and a half hours, by employees of Calderon Dental Care in Bayshore on Long Island when they arrived to set up for the day. They walked in, looked up, and saw him. Heather Hernandez said, quote, hanging out from the ceiling, stuck. He was stuck. He couldn't get out. <laughs> Could you imagine? Like, you're just trying to get your day started and you're like, oh, God, I haven't had enough coffee yet. Let me just get this stuff going. What the fuck? 
Them mushrooms hadn't worn off yet. Heather <laughs> said, he claimed to be looking for Sparkles the cat, and at first she believed him. I kind of did, because I like cats, she said. Then I asked him again, who sent you? And he said, the fire department. And I asked him, like, the fire department? Which fire department? And he said, the 931. And I knew something was wrong. What? Okay. So now I'm going to pause for a second, and now you can click on the link that I sent and look at the picture that somebody snapped of him before he was removed from the okay. event. Oh, this is Facebook? Oh my gosh. Yeah, the PD Facebook. <laughs> See? And they're just like shining a light into his face like, oh no. Oops. And he's he's just hanging there like, okay, now that you've got it's kind of like all those pictures that people talk about the cat um when it's like stuck in the water bottle thing and it can't get out of the plastic. It's like, oh yeah, sure, sure, Karen, snap the picture and then get me out. So yeah, um he's just yeah, right there. Just he's what is that in his hand? A crowbar? Yeah. Sir. uh, I didn't it, it, it didn't quite work out the way he expected it to, needless to say. I sure, hope sure, the fire department sent you. Yeah, yeah. Looks you're, not, like you're not dressed all in black in a hoodie oh, with no, gloves no, no. on and a crowbar uh-huh. hanging from the ceiling of a dentist's office. Yeah. Okay. Needless to say, the police were called and they arrived to remove him from the ceiling because I guess the employees weren't about to help him. They were too busy taking pictures and arrested him. He was then charged with five other burglaries across Suffolk County. Each burglary was committed by entering through the ceiling. One of which was a Jackson Hewitt on Mantock Highway in East Patchogue, Patchogue, I guess. A burglar entered through the ceiling on March 14th, March 14th, 2019, where an employee named Amir Hassan had been sleeping due to the hectic time for taxes. (laughs) Amir said the suspect, who was wearing a mask, told him he was there to deliver vitamins and work on the AC unit. What? What? (laughs) Those are two different careers. And he has a mask on. Stick with one. (laughs) Just one. According to ABC7NY.com, quote, I said, no problem. And I locked the door back up and I went back into my office, Hassan said. I have a shotgun. So I came out with my shotgun and I told him, you leave now. (laughs) <laughs> good job amir for a second i thought he was gonna be like oh okay sure. like just brush it out like that was normal <laughs> continue i'm gonna go back to my nap so suffice it to say he was not very successful in his break-ins he was also accused of break-ins at the vitamin shop on the westbound sunrise service road in bohemia on march 15th high times vape on medford avenue on in north patchigo on march 17th and vitamin world on farber drive north in bellport on march 18th and it's totally giving me like the wet bandits vibes from uh home alone because, like, it's all around the same area. All were entered from the ceiling slash ventilation system. Just stop, dude. He was accused of taking cash, smoking equipment, and locked boxes from various businesses. Smoking oh, equipment? Yeah, because the vape store oh, okay, that he yeah, went yeah, to. Yeah. So he probably, like, whatever he could get his hands on, basically. Yeah. And then locked boxes probably had, like, petty cash or something like that. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, he was charged with five counts of third-degree burglary for all of these. So, 
I couldn't find anything on the actual charges or the trial, whether he was sentenced, whether he went to jail, but I did find something else that was interesting. I did find a profile that was listed under Sean Ryan Maranzano, Maranzino. And uh, when you click on it, it pulls up a Google profile and the profile name says Sean Ryan Zeno on that page. Mm-hmm. So that, so then I was like, okay, well that's interesting. So I looked up Sean Ryan with his last name, which led me to this page. Let me send you a link. You, you fell for my rabbit hole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, this one's not very long though. Okay. Um, Cause this was back in 2019. I did submit my report to the FBI. Okay. <laughs> For the listeners. <laughs> In case you're wondering. Uh, I submitted my first tip to the FBI. Sean Ryan. What is this? Are these shoes? Why are these shoes? Yeah. $200? Yeah. Are these his shoes? Oh. <gasps> So that's what I said. Is he really making shoes and selling for over $200 each? Because that's a serious life change. It seems like it. Because I've then found his Facebook page, which also inclin- uh, which also had some of the page that page linked showing where he's selling shoes. So he's... And they're pretty nice shoes. Did you see the picture of where it says handcrafted in Italy? Mm-hmm. It looks like a... It looks like a... I know it's a, I know it's like tools to build shoes, but it looks like what he would use to break into places. Maybe he just repurposed those things. What? I mean, he did look. Um, he does look Italian. Italian, yeah. And the name too. I'm pretty sure is Italian. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it does. I did do just a little bit of looking. I didn't like harass this person, but it there was also a link to an article that happened that was uh, covering a motorcycle accident back in 2021 that he was actually in and it left him paralyzed. So he has been going through like physical therapy to try to get to where he can walk again. But currently, as far as I can tell, he's still unfortunately in a wheelchair, but he did open that store because he did link that. And he's like, Hey, look at my shoes that I've now created. So, I mean, what a story to go from, I don't know what was going on in his life in 2019, <laughs> um, unemployed HVAC person who was going into buildings and man- managed to get stuck. Which, by the way, I can't believe you didn't comment on the fact that he was trying to rob a dentist office. What was he planning on getting there? Oh, it made sense to me because like um, petty criminals and things like that, especially if there's like drugs involved and things like that, they'll typically like target uh, vet clinics and dentist office because they don't have as much security as like a um, medical practice or something like that Uh, and they have a lot of the same drugs well but okay but how are you gonna get it out i don't know they tend to do it though you're gonna go back up through that event i don't think so out of when i don't i don't really know door well once you're inside and yeah. then the tax shop, although I have an answer for that one, because there was a pharmacy right next door and they think that he accidentally went into the tax shop. He meant to go to the pharmacy. Yeah. Next door. Okay. That makes he more sense. Followed the wrong vent, I guess. Yeah. That makes more sense. Because it to me, it and with the mugshot, I mean, honestly, it, it looks like it was probably drug motivated. 
Um, it, it seems that way. Um, he's still fairly thin, but yeah, he definitely looks much healthier now in any of the pictures that I saw. Um, but it look, I mean, it's kind of nice to see a story like this where you have a, a bandit that's, I mean, it's a goofy story, but also it could have gone a different direction too. And but oh, obviously sure. he turned his life around and looks like he's married now and spends time with his family and has his own business. And if he's able to sell shoes for more than $200 a pop, I mean, all the power to him. Yeah. (laughs) Good on you for turning your life around. But that is all I had for the, um, the ventilation shaft burglar. (laughs) I've had, there was a lot of ones where people died and I didn't want to do that because this one, I stumbled on it and I immediately started laughing so loud when I got to the tax shop part where the guy was just like, oh, sure, curl. Hang on just a second. I just got to go to the office and get something. Walks out with a shotgun. Yeah, you're going to leave. Yeah, you're going to get out of here, bro. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, good job. I almost covered a cave-in, a mine disaster in Alabama. But then I was like, you know what? If we ever do another, because there are a lot of them around here. Yeah. If we ever do it, I'm going to say, I'm going to let you do that one. That makes more sense. So, well, I was just going to steal your thunder. You know, tit for tat, because I figure you're going to get a um, a Black Widow from around here at some point. Yeah, I'm going to have to <laughs> at some point. I'm going to run out. Although Ugh. there are a lot, apparently, surprisingly. Yeah. Well, we're not, we're not going to do the sign-off stuff. You guys know what to do. This is a bonus. Happy Christmas. Wait, no. Merry Halloween. Halloween. There we go. <laughs> that was it. Close enough. Um, you're welcome. <laughs> Happy spooky season. Okay, bye. The reaper will come for us all.